Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word this morning. Help us understand. Open our hearts. We pray that there would be nothing standing in the way. There would be no barriers, no hindrances, Lord God, from us being able to hear and to understand and to accept your truth, Lord God, we pray. Give us your grace, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I just want to reiterate something to you, that as a church, we see ourselves as a family, okay? You know what that means when families get together and there are little kids who make noise? Does it bother them? No. So if there are kids here and they are noisy and they're making noise and they're talking, we are absolutely 100% okay with that. And you heard it from me. Okay? And so it is totally fine. We're okay with it. It doesn't bother us in any way whatsoever. Okay? So I want to encourage you guys to keep in, open your Bibles in Matthew chapter 27. And I just want to remind us where we were last Sunday. If you were here, it was Palm Sunday. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem with his royal procession where everyone was declaring that he was the Savior King. From Monday to Thursday after that, Jesus was in the temple every single day teaching the people. And this was where the religious leaders began to plot Jesus' death. They don't believe that he is the Savior. And so they begin to manufacture false accusations to be able to bring Jesus before Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate was the Roman governor over the cities of Judea and Samaria. And we see this clearly in Matthew chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Why are they doing this, the religious leaders? It's because they have no legal authority to sentence Jesus to death. Only the Roman governor, Pilate, does. Jesus must be convicted of a capital crime in order for him to be sentenced to death. So Thursday night, the religious leaders, they carry out their plot. They begin to put it into action. They pay off Judas, the disciple that betrays Jesus, for 30 pieces of silver. And he tells them that Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane praying. And so the religious leaders, they send their religious guard to the garden. They come and they arrest Jesus. All of the disciples vanish and they abandon Jesus. And then Jesus is brought that Thursday night before the religious council. And they hold an illegal trial. How many of you know that you're not supposed to hold a trial at 2 a.m.? But this is exactly what they've done. And not only have they done that, but they're also paid off false witnesses to come to be able to bring charges against Jesus. That night, the religious order, the guards, they beat Jesus and they spit on him. Then early Friday morning, the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, and they accuse him of treason, suggesting that Jesus had claimed 
to be an earthly king who wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire and the emperor himself. How do we know this? Well, look at what Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 to 14 say. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave, but he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. As Jesus stands trial before Pilate, Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? This is the accusation that is brought against him. And in a Roman trial, charges would be brought first against the accused, and then the accused would have the opportunity to defend their innocence. Yet Jesus only responds back to Pilate saying, it's what you have said. Yet Jesus doesn't deny these accusations. And while the religious leaders continue to insist on accusing Jesus before the Roman governor, he simply chooses to remain silent. Jesus has no need to prove he is a king. Why? Because Jesus is a different kind of king. He has nothing to prove. Amazed by Jesus' silence and unconvinced by the religious leaders' accusations, Pilate brings Jesus before the people. It was customary during festival time for the Roman governor to show an act of goodwill over the people that he was ruling. The governor would release a prisoner of the people's choosing. So Pilate gives the people the choice between releasing Jesus the prisoner or Barabbas, the notorious criminal. The religious leaders find themselves in the midst of the crowd and they are able to persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be the one to be released. And more importantly, when Pilate insists on which of the two they should ask for, the crowd asks for Barabbas. And then Pilate asks the crowd, what should I do with Jesus? And again, the religious leaders are in the midst of the crowd and they persuade them to chant, crucify him, crucify him, kill him, kill him. So Pilate sentences Jesus to be crucified. And part of crucifixion involved being scourged first. Jesus is severely whipped. The Roman soldiers repeatedly whip him with the whip that had both metal and pieces of bone on the ends of the leather strands. As the whip hit Jesus' body, and pulled back, it would tear away his flesh. This is where we pick up our text. Our first point. A mocked king. Verses 27 to 31. Pilate's Roman soldiers take Jesus from his sentencing to be held until his execution. They bring him to Pilate's headquarters, the residence that he occupied while he was in the city of Jerusalem. 
Jesus is brought to the courtyard to this palace where there was a battalion. A battalion usually consisted of about 600 men. We don't believe that there were that many, but we do believe that there was a large contingent of Roman soldiers. And what do they decide to do? Well, they decide to give Jesus, this self-proclaimed king, a private enthronement ceremony. Why are they doing this? Well, they have some fun with the prisoner before they escort Jesus to be executed. They're literally horsing around. In verses 28 and 29, we see the physical abuse start again. Jesus has already, Jesus is already completely covered in blood because of the severe whipping that he has endured. And now he is stripped naked and the soldiers begin to improvise, making him a royal outfit. If Jesus claims to be a king, then he needs to look like one. And so they grab an old scarlet, red-dyed military cloak. This would have been used by a Roman officer. And they place it on Jesus' body for it to be a royal robe. Others grab thin, thorny branches and they weave it together to make him a royal crown to wear just like that one. Then, they would have taken the crown and they would have pressed it on his head, crushing his head, digging into his skin so that it would hold in place. This is being done primarily to mock Jesus. Yet at the same time, it would have been extremely painful. Finally, others find a reed to give to Jesus so that he can hold in his right hand. This is Jesus' royal scepter. And now he is completely adorned in his royal attire. At the end of verse 29, we see that now the verbal abuse starts. The soldiers begin ridiculing Jesus. They bow down on their knees before him to the ground as if they are showing homage to him in honor. This is an enthronement Ceremony, after all, this is what you would routinely do when a king came to visit. But for Jesus, this is a parody of sorts. Next, they begin chanting, Hail, King of the Jews! They're declaring what Jesus has claimed, and they're doing it as a joke. Though they don't know it, they are speaking the truth. Though they are mocking Jesus, they are speaking the truth. We don't know how long this goes on for. And Jesus appears to be a powerless king. Yet, Jesus is a different kind of king. In verse 30, the physical abuse continues. The Roman soldiers take that reed that Jesus was holding in his right hand and they begin to beat him over the head with it. This is violence. 
This is done to intimidate him with the intention of humiliating Jesus. All of this is being done privately within the palace. In their minds, Jesus is no king. Yet Jesus, as the Savior King, he did not come into the city of Jerusalem on a war horse, remember? He did not come to bring violence. Instead, he came riding on a colt. He came to Jerusalem to bring peace. And yet Jesus is shown violence. He is spit on and beaten. He has no need of earthly recognition. He is who he says he is, even when men mock and abuse him. Are you okay with that? Because Jesus was, and he was willing to suffer all this for us. You see, who Jesus is, it doesn't depend on what you think. It doesn't depend on what I think. It doesn't even depend on how we choose to treat him or to respond to him. You see, what people say, what people claim, doesn't change the fact of who Jesus is. A lot of people have a lot to say. And it doesn't change the fact of what Jesus came to accomplish. It's important that we know that. You see, Jesus is the Savior King, regardless of the plans of men. In verse 31, they're done having their fun with Jesus. They strip him again of the clothing that they had put on him, and now they prepare him for another procession. But this one is not royal. Jesus is now taken to the place of his death. You know, there are a lot of people in our world that go around mocking Jesus. That go around saying that he isn't who he truly said he was. And yet we don't get to decide. We don't get to have our ideas. The same way that someone can't go and describe me as being a man that is six foot four, clean shaven, with long locks of hair. Could they? Because if they did, it would be false. The same is true of Jesus the true, real, historical figure who even people in the first century, historians of the time, like Josephus himself, was able to verify that Jesus was a real, living, and breathing person, not a figment of people's imagination. The question is, will you mock him? Will you scoff him? 
Or will you humbly come and bow down before him? The choice is yours. Second, a suffering king. Verses 32 to 44. A criminal sentence to crucifixion was required to carry the crossbeam of the cross from the place where he was sentenced to the place of his own execution. This was part of the public humiliation. Everyone watching the criminal carrying the object of his own punishment. Jesus hasn't slept all Thursday night because his trial was during the night. He had been beaten and slapped by the religious leaders, whipped repeatedly by the Roman soldiers, spat on and struck on the head multiple times. His body, his body is covered in blood. He is physically exhausted by this point. And now he has to carry his crossbeam, this large and heavy piece of timber, and it is too much for him to carry. So in verses 32 and 33, the Roman soldiers compel a man named Simon of Siren to carry the cross. And it's important that we understand that Simon isn't doing this willingly. He is being forced by the Roman soldiers to do so. Simon and his family are very likely have come to celebrate Passover to Jerusalem. And as he is making his way into the city, Jesus is making his way out of the city and they intersect. Jesus drops his cross on the floor. And so the Roman soldiers grab the first person they see and who is it? Simon. And they make him carry the cross from where Jesus drops it all the way to the place of Jesus' execution, which was Golgotha, the place of the skull, as it was called, where criminals were executed. In verses 34 to 38, Jesus arrives at Golgotha. This place would have been near the road because it would have allowed the people that were coming in and out of the city to have the opportunity to observe this public execution. This was done on purpose in this public place so that people would be detoured for committing crimes. If you broke Roman law, if you tried to rise up against Rome, this is what would happen to you. And so people knew the fate that was waiting for them if they chose to come against Rome. Jesus is offered wine mixed with gall. Gall was likely myrrh, a sap-like resin that's extracted from a small tiny tree spice. This resin would have made the wine extremely bitter. It would have been undrinkable. Jesus would have taken a sip of it and he would have spit it out right away. Again, this is one more way that the soldiers are mocking Jesus.
Jesus is stripped naked once again. This is to add to his shame as a criminal. And then he is literally nailed to the cross. His clothes then would have been divided amongst the four Roman soldiers that had accompanied him. These soldiers also stay and they keep watch as Jesus is now dying, hanging on the cross because they want to ensure that Jesus' disciples do not come to try to rescue him before he dies. This is important because this shows validity of the fact that Jesus actually, literally, did die. On the top of Jesus' cross, the legal charge would have been nailed for the reason of his execution. This way, all who watched and those who walked by, they would have known what Jesus was convicted of. And it read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. A king is being executed. And Jesus isn't being crucified alone. There are two robbers alongside of him. There is one robber to his right, and there is one robber to his left. In verses 39 to 44, the public humiliation and mockery continues. You see, a week ago, or five days ago, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, there is a large crowd that is hailing him as the Savior King. At Jesus' sentencing, there is another crowd, and now that crowd is chanting, and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And now, at the place of his execution, there is another crowd. And in this crowd, there are three distinct groups of people. First, those who are passing by. It's likely that many of those who were present chanting, crucify him, crucify him, have now come to witness what they were declaring. They, they want to make sure that Pilate is following through on his promise. And they are throwing insults at Jesus and they're shaking their heads like, You who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Hey Jesus, do you remember what you said you would do? Yet they fail to understand that Jesus wasn't speaking of the actual literal temple, but that he was speaking of his death and his resurrection. Now, they're falsely accusing him and taunting him to save himself, and so that he can prove that he is the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? If you really are who you say you are, prove it. Yet Jesus gives no response. The second group is the religious leaders. And listen, there is no one more interested than this group in seeing Jesus die. They are the ones who plotted their death. And they mock him. So, you had the power to save and to heal other people but you can't use that same power to heal yourself? Are you really the king of Israel? Listen, if you come down from that cross and show your power, 
we will believe in you. No, they wouldn't. The religious leaders had seen the miracles. The religious leaders had heard Jesus' teaching. They had acknowledged that he taught with authority like no one else. Many of them even claimed that he had come from God, that he was a prophet. You see, there was nothing that Jesus could have done to prove to this group that he was who he said he was. And they continue. You say that you trust in God the Father. You say that you're his son. You say that you have a special relationship with him. So let's see him come down and rescue you now. Like, let's see it. And all of this egging is going on to try to taunt Jesus into doing what they want. But Jesus gives no response. The third group is the most unlikely group. It's the actual two robbers, the one on his right and the one on his left. They also are taunting Jesus. Jesus, if you really are who you say you are, why don't you act? Why don't you do something? Why don't you even help us? Yet, Jesus gives no answer. You see, Jesus' death, it is not peaceful. There's antagonism from all of his enemies on all sides. Why? Well, because Jesus, as the king on a cross, is a contradiction. <laughs> Kings are not meant to die on crosses. Kings are meant to rule. Yet Jesus is a different kind of king. See, he's hanging on the cross willingly. He's made this clear to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Look closely. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Does Jesus have the power to leave the cross? Yes, he does. Will Jesus come down from the cross? No, never. No matter what his enemies say, Jesus will not come down from the cross. Why? Well, because he came to give his life in the place of sinners. You and me. Jesus is not facing the wrath of men. He is facing the wrath of God. He is dying for the sins of men so that you and I could be forgiven and saved by God. You see, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9 clearly says, For while you were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, who is that? Us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in the, while we were still sinners. Who's that? Us. Christ died for us. 
Since therefore we, now, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You and I have been spared by, from God's wrath because Jesus Christ took it upon himself. This is not the plan or will of men on display. It is the will and plan of God for us. You see, you and I now do not need to face the wrath of God because Jesus has taken our place. Are you thankful for that this morning? I want to encourage you to close your eyes as our brother Christoph comes up and leads us in communion. Amen. church. Uh, I'm pretty excited to be able to share communion with you guys this morning. You know, it's a, it's a time of reflection. It's just to think about what Jesus did for us so long ago. It's still so, so important today. Um, if you didn't already get a cup or in the back, uh, today our scripture reading will be taken from Matthew chapter 26, verse 26 through 29. Uh, feel free to follow along in your Bible or it's not even up there, but it's okay. Let us read. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the, of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Amen. So the bread. With this bread... We give thanks for Jesus taking the crushing weight of our sins and bearing it all by himself so that now we don't have to do that same thing ourselves. That weight was for us, but he took it even though he didn't have to. He was beaten and he was bruised for us. He didn't deserve this, but he still did it. He is so worthy and you know we're not worthy. He bore our guilt and our shame. You know, as we eat this bread, we know that we are now completely cleansed and justified with God. So, let me pray. Dear God, I just want to thank you for your body that was that was neglected, that was bruised, that was beat. That just bore all the way, all the sins, all the th sins of this world, our, our, our own sins, God. Jesus, you bore that weight. I just thank you for what you did, for sacrificing your body, Lord, so that we are here today completely justified with you, Lord God. Help us to remember as we eat this bread now what you did for us. In your name, amen. Let us eat the bread.
case of the wine. We give thanks for what Jesus did. His blood was shed. It was spilt for our past, present, and future sins. His blood that washes us white as snow. It washes all unrighteousness and makes us clean. He gave it for us, and we're thankful for that as we drink together, knowing that we are made new by the work of Jesus Christ, the covenant of the blood. Let's pray. Dear God, dear Jesus, thank you for your your cleansing blood, Lord. Thank you that it cleans us so clean, so white, so pure, Lord. God, help us not to forget, Jesus, the work that you did on the cross, Lord. Help us remember it every single day in everything that we do, Lord, that we are made new by you. Just thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you that you are risen, Lord. You're with us today, God. You're worthy, Lord. You're so worthy. Let us drink together. Amen. Thank you. I hope you enjoy the rest of the sermon. God bless. William, what does it matter that we remember what a man did 2,000 years ago? Is it really that important? Well, you see, Jesus was no man. Jesus is the Savior King. He is God in the flesh. The one who was fully man and fully God. The one who was without sin, the only one that was the perfect sacrifice who was able to take away my sin and your sin. Jesus was a mocked king. Jesus was a suffering king. And finally, Jesus is a dead king. Verses 45 to 50. Matthew tells us that Jesus' suffering on the cross lasts three hours. This would have been physically excruciating as the weight of his body would have been putting pressure on his lungs to the point of making it increasingly difficult to breathe. You see, people who were crucified on the cross, they died by asphyxiation. As their weight fell on them, as they was coming down, it would crush over their chest. And so it was a slow death. At the sixth hour, that would be our equivalent to noon. Until the ninth hour, Matthew tells us, which would have been the equivalent to our 3 p.m., darkness covered the whole land. You see, at the time of day, when the sun was its brightest... The land of Israel is in complete pitch black. You see, this isn't the result, as some would say, of an eclipse or of a sandstorm that could have potentially happened because during the time of Passover, it would have been the full moon. Did anybody here see the full moon last night? I did. 
I did while I was watching The Passion of the Christ. I peered through out my window and I could see the moon. This is no natural phenomenon. It's an instead an act of God's intervention. He's displaying judgment upon the actions of men. You see, God reacts to the crucifixion of His Son, Jesus Christ. Not only does God act, Jesus does also. We see that He cries out in a loud voice. And He says in Aramaic, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 in the Old Testament. And He's making this powerful statement. That as he obediently embraces the plan of God by taking the sin of the world, that his relationship with God the Father is shattered and distant for a moment. That this is the place in the moment where Jesus feels the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders. This weight of the curse of sin that crushes Jesus causes him to cry out. Why? Because Jesus was perfect, without sin. And now for the first time in his life, he experiences the full weight of the sin of the world. This is not a cry of helplessness. This is a cry of victory. Our king has saved us. You see, Jesus is a different kind of king. A king who takes upon himself the curse of sin. We learn this in Galatians chapter 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a cross. You see, the Old Testament made it clear that someone who died on a cross was considered cursed by God. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23 says. Look, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by who? By God. You see, today you and I, we are free from condemnation and from the curse of sin. Because Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, took our curse upon himself. You see Romans, 1, Romans 8 verse 1 beautifully says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is only possible because in this moment of cry, Jesus takes your sin upon his shoulders, the curse that was upon us that we faced. Now we no longer must face. In verses 48, 47 into 49, the crowd that is there present at Jesus' crucifixion, they're trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying in Aramaic. And it would have been really confusing and it would have been really easy for them to confuse what Jesus is saying with thinking that he was calling for the prophet Elijah to come and rescue him. And so they're saying, oh, look, he's asking for the prophet to come and rescue him. Because if you know the Old Testament, Elijah didn't die. He was taken up in heaven in a chariot of fire. 
And so they believed that one day Elijah would come back. And so now Jesus is calling on Elijah. And this would have made sense if you remember the fact that the whole crowd, the three groups of people, they were taunting Jesus to come down from the cross, right? And so now they're saying, oh, look, he's asking for Elijah to come. And so wait, let, let, let's see if Elijah's going to come and actually rescue Jesus. One of the people that are there feels some kind of compassion. And they grab a sponge and they fill it with sour wine. And they put it up and they give it to Jesus. This sour wine would have been the cheap wine which the Roman soldiers would have had at their disposal to use. But the crowd says, wait, 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 wait. don't give him too much because we don't want him to die too quickly because we want to see if Elijah is actually going to come. Yet Elijah does not come. And in verse 50, Jesus cries out one final time with a loud voice. And Matthew says that he yields up his spirit or he hands over his life. Jesus, the Savior King, has died. You see, by the time a crucified person reached the end, they would have been in a state of complete exhaustion. They would have been unable to breathe, and they would have died by asphyxiation. The weight of his body has crushed so heavily upon his lungs that it's become impossible to breathe. Yet, when you read verse 50, Matthew tells us <laughs> that though Jesus should have been physically exhausted, that he made a loud cry, and that he yielded up his spirit. You see, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus dies voluntarily. He decided to die. He decided to hand over his life. He decided to give his final breath. He decided. I want to invite the, the worship team up. Okay, William, why does this all matter? Why is this important? Well, it's important because Jesus is a different kind of of king. One that's falsely accused of crimes that he never committed. He's a king that suffers physical and verbal abuse. A king that's humiliated both privately and publicly. He's mocked, ridiculed, and laughed at. A king that's beaten, slapped, spit on, and severely whipped. A king who has to carry his own cross. A king that is nailed to his cross. Jesus is a king who dies between two robbers. And he is deserving of none of it. What men used for humiliation and mockery, God uses for our salvation. I want you to hear that. What men use 
to humiliate and mock Jesus with, God has used to save us. Jesus, the Savior King, is on the cross, not because men have decided, but because he has. I'm going to say that again. Jesus has died on the cross not because men have decided through their own will and plan and schemes, but he is there because he has chosen to be there. You see, Jesus said in John 10, 17 and 18, clearly, while he was still alive, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Why don't you stand with me? I want us to I want us to respond today. I want us to respond to the fact that Jesus is a different kind of king. He is a king who has come not to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life because he chooses to do so. Jesus is a king who has laid down his life for us. And he willingly chooses to lay it down in order to save us. You see, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was my sin. And it was your sin that held him there. This is why Jesus is worthy of all of our worship and praise. He is worthy of it all. You see, because Jesus is a king like no other, the one who has come to suffer in our place to save us. And so today, as an acknowledgement of that in your own personal life, as we begin to worship, I want to give you the opportunity to come forward before the cross and to come and to stand before there alone or with your family and I want you to think of two things when you come. I want you to think of the weight of your own sin. No one has to tell you you know. I want you to think of every thought that you've had that you shouldn't have had. I want you to think of every word that you spoke that you shouldn't have. I want you to think of every action that you committed that you shouldn't have. I want you to come here knowing that Jesus willingly took that on his shoulders in your place. But I also want you to come and to leave here with your heart filled with everlasting joy, knowing that without the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Savior King who took your sins 
upon his shoulders. You see, first, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, that being God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. As you embrace these truths of the word of God today, you're not just declaring that Jesus Christ is worthy because he is the Savior King. I want you to declare that you desire for Jesus to be your Savior King. And that you acknowledge that he is worthy of it all. So if you, that's where your heart is today and you feel convicted, we're going to be respectful. We're going to give people time. And what we're asking is, is that you would come down these stairs here on my right, that you would come and that you would stand before the cross, that you would acknowledge your sin, that you would thank Jesus for what he's done for you, and then that you would walk this way back to your seat. Lord Jesus, you are a different kind of king. You are a king who willingly chooses to lay down his life. You are a king who has come not to be served, but to serve. To give your life, to ransom us, to purchase us back with your blood so that we could be forgiven of our sin, so that the curse of sin and the power of death would not be upon us, but that it would be upon your shoulders. So that you could grant us peace with God. And now we do not need to face God's wrath and punishment, which we rightly deserve, because we are sinners. But Jesus, you have come, because you, Father, so loved the world, that you gave your only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Lord, you do not want us to perish in our sin. You have come to save us. So I encourage you to respond. And then when you go back to your seat and you sing, sing. Sing loudly. Sing joyfully. Because the sin that was on your shoulders is now on Jesus Christ's shoulders. You are forgiven. You have been made new. Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us respond.